Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. And for those of you who are tuning in to listen to my mother, she's not joining us today. Sorry about that. But she will be back again soon. We have um, a really fascinating conversation for you today. Our guest is Kate Zernicki, and she's been a reporter for the New York Times since the year 2000. She was a member of the team that won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for stories about Al-Qaeda before and after the 9-11 terror attacks. She was previously a reporter for the Boston Globe, where she broke the story of MIT's admission that it had discriminated against women on its faculty, on which this book that we're talking about today, The Exceptions, is based. Kate is the daughter and granddaughter of scientists. She's a graduate of Trinity College at the University of Toronto and the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and sons, and she's still doing some amazing work at the New York Times. I just saw a headline from the past couple days. So welcome to Writer's Voices, Kate. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So tell us about the exceptions and... Um, it's the, the subtitle is Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. What drew you to, you know, you've, you've written about an amazing breadth of, of um, really interesting stories for your journalism career. What drew you to want to write a whole book about this one? You know, people often, I find often with groups of students in particular, they ask me what my favorite story was. Um, <laughs> and I always say the same thing, which is like, well, that's like asking, you know, who's your favorite child? Like, you're never going to pick just one. Um, but I did, I always looked back really fondly on this story, partly because I'd broken it, it had been my exclusive, but also I was just really impressed and um, frankly educated by these women, this group of 16 women who Nancy or 15 women who Nancy worked with to get that got MIT to admit it had discriminated against women. Um, I started coming back to the idea of writing a book about it in 2018, partly because Nancy was, uh, she'd retired in 2014 and she was trying to figure out what to do with her pretty vast archive of papers, you know, emails and memos and diaries about this time in her life. Um, but I, you know, if you remember, it was January of 2018 and the Me Too movement was surging. And, you know, I, like many people, watched that and thought, okay, this is something, obviously a really good development. Like, it's important that executives know they can't open their bathrobes to their female <laughs> employees. Um, yeah. But, but to me, yeah, right, got that. Um, but to me, I, I kept thinking we're not talking about the real problem, which is that we just don't. At the root of all this is that we don't take women seriously, and the women of the exceptions had really taught me at you know at the beginning of my career that discrimination doesn't, as they said, it doesn't look like what we thought it looked like. I think when I did this story in 1999, I thought, you know, at the beginning of it, I thought discrimination is when doors are closed to people, right? Once you open the doors, that's that's not the end, but that's a big step. And what these women showed me was that, in fact, it's not just about opening doors. It's really about how you treat people and how you view them throughout the arc of their career, and for women in particular as they get older. Um, so I thought, you know, I was watching the Me Too movement and thinking that actually this is a problem. The marginalization of women in professional spheres is a problem that's that's more pervasive and more insidious, more stubborn, um, 
And I thought that if I could tell this intimate story of what it's like to live with this on a day-to-day basis, as these women did, that I could sort of contribute to the larger conversation about discrimination against women and what it looks like now in the 21st century. Now, the story broke in 1999, correct? Yep. And yeah. But these women, um, a lot of the discrimination and, and a lot of what you write about is starting from in the 60s. Yeah. Onward. So the, yeah. Yeah. So um, the book the book starts in 1963 when Nancy Hopkins. Well, first let me say that when I say that the discrimination is different at the time, really what these women were talking about was they called it marginalization or 21st century discrimination. But they said, you know, this was done with oftentimes people who who didn't intend to discriminate, right? In many, many cases, these men in particular, and sometimes women who discriminated, had the best of intentions. Um, They just sort of didn't realize how the culture was, how our cultures are stacked against women still. And so what they were talking about was unconscious bias. And in 1999, that was a really, that was an unheard of term. Right. The first big academic paper on unconscious bias was 1995, but nobody was talking about it. Now, or, you know, in 2018, when I started writing this, I thought that unconscious bias was now so everyone's talking about it, right? And to the point where people dismiss it as like, oh, I know about that. I had the workplace training on that. Or, at the, you know, at the far end, they say that's just wokeism. So again, like I thought if you could talk, if you could describe what it looks like and what it feels like day to day, year after year. So the book starts, as you say, with Nancy Hopkins in 1963 when she's a junior at Radcliffe, which is the girls version of Harvard. Um, And she's, you know, she's 19 years old. She's at a total crossroads in her life. Her father has died the year before. She doesn't know what she's going to do with her life, but she has a pretty good sense she's going to marry this boyfriend she's met first year of freshman week or first week of freshman year. Um, but she doesn't want to get married right after graduation. She wants to take 10 years before she has to have kids at age 30, <laughs> take 10 years to do something big. Right. And, and, and Nancy doesn't set small goals. She's like, I'm going to, I'm going to alleviate human suffering. <laughs> so she's trying to figure out how she's going to, you know, how in 10 years she can alleviate human suffering. And um, she goes to this one hour biology lecture taught by James Watson four months after he and Francis Crick have won the Nobel Prize for decoding the structure of DNA. And in that one-hour lecture, she just completely falls in love with science, with a scientific pursuit, particularly with DNA and the promise and the potential of DNA to answer all these questions about, you know, about people and about heredity and about, you know, really sort of society um, that she's been pondering for the last year. She's a very precocious young woman. Um, and so she, so Watson, she goes to Watson's office and asks to work in his lab, and he, he allows her. He really does open that door for her, and he treats her very well. He, you know, she, she becomes his protege or one of his protégés. And then in 1973, she gets a job at MIT, because, partly because the war, Nixon's war on cancer is starting, and there's great interest in understanding the genetics of cancer, um, but also because it's the dawn of affirmative action. And Nancy gets this job in 1973. She knows she's an affirmative action hire, but she doesn't really worry about that because she thinks, I've got what it takes and I can do this job. And so all that's going to matter is merit. And the next, you know, as I say, like <laughs> the next 20 years sort of school her about this. So, yes, this is a, the book takes you through the 70s, the 80s, the early 90s, when really, you know, certainly by the early 90s, we thought we had these problems kicked, I think. And what the book shows you is that in very subtle way that discrimination might look different, um, but it was still very much there. Yeah. And, and 
in some ways it was really pretty blatant. It's just that the women weren't talking to each other. So everyone thought that the things that they were running up against were just due to one personality, you know, somebody in their department or, or just, or they just weren't aware. And also I think this is often the case that the women who had made it Mm -hmm. in that environment wanted to, yeah, they, they wanted to feel like they had done everything that they needed to do. And, and I don't know. It's like, yeah, they didn't want to admit that there was discrimination. And why, why is that? What, why do they not want to admit that? Well, as you say, you know, and this is one of the book, this is one of the reasons I call the book The Exception, because so I went into this not knowing what I was going to title the, title the book. I mean, it's, you know, and so of course the women are exceptional and, you know, they're, they were exceptional for getting jobs. Um, so that's one reason, but the other is just what you say, which is that they kept dismissing, like constantly in my conversations, they'd be like, well, but I thought it was just this one guy or in Nancy's case, you know, she thought it was this one particularly competitive floor of a building she was working on. And then she leaves the floor and she's like, oh, that's not it. And maybe it's the field. And like, so they're constantly explaining away, as you say, I think they do that for a couple of reasons. One is that Nancy in particular, but then actually, and I won't even say that, I would say all of these women really wanted to believe that science was a meritocracy um, and that they could do it on their own. And so they were loath to give up that idea. But they yeah. also, you know, they felt really lucky to have these jobs. And frankly, they were lucky. I mean, even, even in the 50s, when in mid-50s, in 1957, this country was very worried about Sputnik and competing with the Russians and the space race and the arms race. Um, the Russians had many more, like much higher percentage of female engineers than we did. And there was this effort to get more people into science and even more women into science. But there was still this, you know, unspoken bias that girls kind of couldn't really do science. So, or they, if they, they could, they would to quit have to have children, to have kids. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but then I think the other thing that holds them back to a great degree is that the women they had seen in their, you know, when they were getting their education or in their early careers, the women who succeeded, um, either they had sort of that queen bee syndrome of, you know. Uh, I did it, you can do it too, just, you know, shut up and and keep your head down. And so they thought that was the model. Or there were women, like in the book I talk about Barbara McClintock, Nobel Prize winning biologist, those women were were prickly and were dismissed as difficult. So Mm -hmm. all of the women, the women that I talk about, they were worried that if they raised their hand and said something, they too would be dismissed as difficult. They didn't want to play the gender card. Like they didn't want to be the woman scientist. They wanted to be scientists. Right. So I think that was the main thing that keeps them from acknowledging what's happening to them. Right. And to some extent, they were one of the boys. And and by calling out this behavior, they wouldn't be one of the boys anymore. Right. And also, you know, I think I don't know that they necessarily felt like they were one of the boys. One of them, you know, Penny Chisholm, who's now a National Medal of Science winner, um, a, a marine biologist, she felt like. She, they didn't know what to do with marine biologists, this, you know, this woman, right? So they stick her in civil engineering. So she was like, <laughs> oh, maybe it's because I'm in engineering, right? But she felt very much like she always said, you know, the guys at the table, the guys around the table at the faculty meeting, like they all had a playbook. And she felt like she hadn't been given the playbook. So she didn't feel like one of the guys. Mm. Um, but I think it was also that these men were their friends. And so 
these are small departments. And I should also point out, you hinted at this in your question, but there were so few women at MIT and really in science, I mean, this is, MIT was not the exception in this. Um, there were so few women that they had no control group, right? So there wasn't, you know, even in biology where there were a higher percentage of, of female faculty, they were all working in different buildings. So they, they couldn't compare their experience to anyone else. So the first, I think, I think this is something that we as humans do. You go, oh, it's my fault. It must be something I'm doing wrong. I'll just switch it up. So they don't want to blame their friends or their colleagues. They, you know, and they don't want to, they don't want to play the gender card either. Right. Right. So, um, Nancy was sort of a reluctant leader in this cause, wasn't she? Yes, and I always say, you know, she's, she's a reluctant, she's a reluctant feminist. Um, there's one point in the book where she, you know, she teaches this women's studies. She actually ends up being the first person from the School of Science to teach a women's studies class, and it's like she, you know, she's sort of loath to even look at the women's studies people. Someone, else, a man, actually says, "You got to put your oar in this water," you know, if you want women to succeed, but. But she kind of distances herself from all of that because she thinks that those women are playing the gender card. And she thinks, no, 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 like I'm in the meritocracy. It's all going to be fine. Um, So, yeah, she's a very reluctant activist and a very reluctant feminist. She's not someone who, starting out, you would expect to do this. She writes this pretty incredible, in retrospect, article for the Radcliffe Quarterly, um, which is the alumni magazine for Radcliffe College, the women's college at Harvard, um, in 1976, and she talks about some of the things she's facing, but she attributes it all. Basically, the, the point of her article is you can't do this job and have children. Um, and she doesn't have children, and half the women in this group of 16 don't have children. They make a choice. Um, but she thinks that that's the only problem. She thinks as long as I don't have kids, it'll be fine. Like, yes, it's competitive, but I, again, I have what it takes. Which it's um, sad, you know, that women of that generation who were serious about their career felt like they couldn't have kids because it is yeah, yeah because you know the men weren't thinking that obviously yeah and you know it's almost <laughs> there's almost a throwaway line in the book where mm. when she's getting divorced yeah and discovers that her oh. husband yeah. <laughs> actually <laughs> had the means to have hired mm-hmm. help if they had decided to be together and have kids. Yes. He had a trust fund that he, she wasn't aware of. Yeah. And that's just like, I mean, you don't make a big deal about that, but because she really did want to have children initially. I think she, yes, yes. Well, I think, you know, when you go back, one of the great things about writing about universities is that they, they archive everything. <laughs> um so I was able to read, you know, read sort of a lot from Radcliffe and Harvard at the time and, you know, figure out how many women and how many men were in the class, that kind of thing. One of the sort of more obvious things I did was look at Nancy's 1964 yearbook from Radcliffe. And you you just realize, first of all, how confident these young women were. This is pre-women's movement, right? Like now the National Organization for Women was started in, I think it's either 66 or 67. But so this was a previous, these women were sort of on the cusp of all that. But they are, it's a year after Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, and they are like, forget Betty Friedan, forget Simone de Beauvoir. We got, like, that's for our mother's generation. We got this. But they all know that they are expected to have a family and have, but they think they can have a career. And they really think there's going to be no problem dealing with all this. They think that the world is wide open to them. 
you know, maybe it'll be a struggle, but they can do it. Um, so I think that, yes, she felt like she was like other young women of her generation. She felt like she was expected to have children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think she wanted children, but I think she also really, really wanted to do science. What amazes me is the the level of science that these women were doing and the things that they discovered and learned and, and contributed to scientific knowledge. And yeah. I just, it, it kind of blows my mind because I am um, a little bit, I'm, you know, a little bit younger than Nancy, but not yeah. that much younger. So, um, where I, re- you know, I was thinking back and about the career choices that I looked faced as a as a young woman, and and mm-hmm. what encouragement I did or didn't get in the early seventies, going to college, yeah. early to mid seventies, going you know looking at colleges, and I remember talking to one of. Um, one of the fr- my friends from middle school, and we had moved across country after middle school, but I had reconnected many, you know, just a few years ago. And she talked about coming out of high school and thinking her only options were being a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher. Yeah. And yeah, she work, chose yeah. secretary because she didn't want to be a teacher or a nurse. And, mm-hmm. you know, that isn't that long ago. Um. I kind of went down my own path and became an entrepreneur very young. So I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't face, in some ways, I never, I never felt like I faced the type of discrimination in the workplace that other people did because I always created my own workplace. Right, Um, exactly. Yeah. And, um, but I loved science as a little kid. And by high school, I had no interest in science by high school. And I wonder how much of that was, me and how much was the culture the culture pushing against you yeah so that is actually still well i shouldn't say still because i haven't looked at the most recent numbers but certainly um in the 90s when all this was happening and i i have this context in the book there that was exactly what was happening there was sort of, i think it's you know we, we tend to i think it's a test or fourth eighth and twelfth grade or maybe the surveys are tenth grade but but yes exactly in middle school interest is equal or higher and then but by the time you look at who's taking the courses in high school it really is more men more young men oh yeah yeah um and that actually to me was so interesting about the report that these women so the 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 mit's admission was based on this report that the group of women started with this committee they asked for to compare men and women's resources and how they were treated um and one of the most striking graphics in that report to me at the time and now was, you know, I think I went into this thinking, because, you know, my father, who's a physicist, had talked about the lack of women in physics, and he was concerned about it. And I think partly in the back of my mind, I thought, well, maybe they just don't want to go into physics. Um, but then when you looked at this graphic that the um, that the women had in their report, you saw that, in fact, they looked at, at the, the percentage of women or the number of women and percentage of women at all different levels. So undergraduate, graduate, uh, postdoc, junior faculty, senior faculty, or tenured, and the number of women was was higher than the number of men in some cases at the undergraduate and even at the graduate level. But something happens at the PhD level mm-hmm. where they, you know, they they start to drop out. 
Um, and that is still the case at MIT. You know, MIT today is actually pretty much run by women from the head of the board of trustees to the president to the dean of science. Seriously? School. I did not yes. know that. That's yes. fantastic. It is. Eight departments in the, in the School of Engineering and five are led by women, which is like astonishing. Never in 1999, when this story broke, there had not been a single woman to head any department in science. So wow. this is really progress. But then you look at the Ph.D. level and it is it's the young women who are dropping out. And when you ask them about it, they say that that they still feel this stigma of, you know, girls can't do science. You are you are here. I don't think it's necessarily as much still, well, you're just going to have babies and drop out. But it is sort of this sense of like, you don't really belong here. And when you're constantly told or made to feel that you don't belong, pretty much you're going to go look for the place where you feel like you do belong. And that may be, you know, with a family or a different job or whatever. But, you know, they're not, I think it's, it still is, that culture still is pushing against women in science. Well, those, do you know those women who are dropping out, are they going into industry or? Such a good question. Yeah. So I think, um, and this is where, so yes, I think they are going into industry because industry tends to be a little more flexible. And I don't mean that like, you know, everyone's like working 20 hour weeks and uh, starting businesses on the side, their own business on the side. Um I do think that um, that there's a little. That I think they, there's a little more structural support in industry. In other words, your you know your pay is better, so you can hire better childcare. Mm. Um, there are other people on your team. You're not leading a lab, and it's sort of all up to you, and you know to oversee these grad students and produce the results. Um, that said, the work that Nancy has moved on to, and I just I only mentioned this in the epilogue of the book is looking at women in biotech. Um, and so they've looked at MIT and Stanford. And then the, when you look at who's starting companies, the, the female faculty or male faculty at MIT and Stanford, it really is, it's disproportionately men, right? There are, if you, they did some interesting number that looked at, you know, if the, if the proportions had been equal, there would have been 40 additional companies founded by women since, since 2000. So you think about like what, you know, what mm. innovation we're missing out on. That so so yes, I think women are going in industry, but they're not starting companies. They're not uh, um, they're yeah. they're not leading companies. They're not being asked to serve on scientific advisory boards. So what's really interesting is this effort that they're doing now in Boston that Nancy um, Nancy is doing with Susan Hockfield, who was the first female president of MIT, and a woman named Sangeeta Basha, who's a um, she's a bioengineer and she has started companies of her own. She considers Nancy a mentor. They have gotten the Boston uh, venture capital community to sign on to a pledge that says within two years they will not fund any company that does not have 25% women among its leadership and scientific advisory boards, which I think is really huge. Well, I was just going to say one of the reasons perhaps that women weren't starting companies at the same rate is how much harder it is for women to raise money. Exactly. And that's, yeah. again, that's something that, you know, the, bo the book talks about this, um, you know, how Cambridge in particular became very biotech focused starting in the late seventies, early eighties. And that really, you know, Nancy is just like completely left out of that world. She, you know, she's not offered a part of it. And one of her colleagues actually says to her, men don't want to give money to women. You know, they just don't, they're, they're not familiar with it. Yeah. And the whole idea of that you take what this things that you've learned from your work at this university that you're being paid for and then go out and start a company with it is a little 
it's like, isn't there some ethical issues there? And and why has that <laughs> never been addressed? You know, it's like it's intellectual yeah. property that was developed on somebody else's dime. Well, it's also, you know, the universities in, in many cases get a cut of that. But the other problem or other issue that I see, and we're seeing this now with the COVID vaccines and Moderna, is that a ton of federal money goes to these universities to develop these things. And then the federal money. So then, you know, what percentage of that is actually taxpayer taxpayers yes. paying to yeah. create these products? Yeah, that, that someone then goes out and, and makes a fortune from. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Kate Zernicki, author of The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. So how does Nancy feel about having a book written mostly about her? <laughs> um, uh, well, it's been a journey. Um, you know, Nancy, again, like the other, when the story broke in 1999, Nancy really became, so the story breaks. The dean of science, who's a man who's become an ally, he shows up to his office the next morning. CBS Evening News is there with a camera crew to, to do the story. Nancy picks up her phone. She's on the air in Australia with the radio. And um, and then the New York Times puts the story in the front, and these women are bombarded by emails from across the country and really around the world from women saying, this is my story, too, and I can't believe this happened. So So that was a shock to all of the women at MIT, and they kind of – I won't say it was a pact, but they, they were willing to let Nancy speak for them because they, again, all of them wanted to be seen as scientists, not female scientists or women scientists. So Nancy became this spokeswoman for the issue and, and really a hero to, to people, to two generations of, of women, you know, her own and the next one. Um, but she, again, she always felt a little bit reluctant about it. And even now, she'll say to me, you know, first she'll say, why did I put up with this for 20 years? Why did I put up with a bad treatment? <laughs> And then she'll say, you know, what, like, did I, it's always this thing of, you know, she gets an honorary degree and it's like, well, are they just doing it because of the women's work, as she calls it? Like, are they doing it because I'm a great scientist or because I did all this social activism? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's both and both are valuable. But so I think she's always been a little reluctant. Um, she was understandably nervous. It's always amazing to me as a journalist how, <laughs> when when I find people who are willing to share their personal lives. But so the first day that I, I took a leave from the New York Times to write this book, and the first day of my leave, she um, I hadn't been in touch with her for a few weeks. I was rushing to finish a newspaper story, and I think she got nervous, um, and she was like, "I'm not I'm not doing this. I can't do this." And I was like, "Wait, come back!" Whoa! Um, so yeah, you draw you can't drop out of me. So so I coaxed her back, but it was reluctant. And so in the beginning. Um, she was going to share some of her papers with me, but not all of them. And then we got, to, and she was going to sit with me while I looked through them to make sure that I wasn't taking anything she didn't want me to have. And then she sort of, you know, she opened up the whole thing. And then she shared with me um, uh, uh, an attempt at a memoir that she had written after she became very well known as the woman who took on Larry Summers when Larry Summers, as president of Harvard, <laughs> said, you know, girls can't do science. Yeah. So she tried to write a memoir and abandon it. Um, and so she shared that with me, but she wouldn't share one particular chapter, which was about the breakup of her marriage. Um, and gradually we got to the point where she shared that chapter, but but not particular parts of it. And then in the end, I saw the whole thing. And so, um, you know, I think she is reluctant, but she's reluctant because she doesn't, um, you know, again, it's it's all about the science for her and the curiosity. I think she has, I think now, she, you know, the book has been well received, most importantly, by people she respects. Um, and she does feel like the book, you know, it celebrates science in the way that she wanted to. But she, 
she paid me what I consider really the, the greatest compliment, which is she said, you know, I didn't understand my own life until I read your book. And it, so I think it really was putting, putting her story in context. And in some ways that's allowed her to be a little more forgiving toward herself because she sees like it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that she was so crazy to put up with all of this for 20 years because other women were doing this. And really the culture was, was making her think that it was okay. And so when you look at it viewed through history, I think she's able to kind of forgive herself a little bit more. I, I, I've never actually, she's never put it that way to me, but that's kind of where I land. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, it is, you know, there is a lot of in the book about her personal life. And I can imagine that that was a little, that that was challenging for her to, to um, kind of allow you to bear her history that way. Well, yeah. And even my, my book editor at times would say like, well, you know, do we really want to? And I felt like particularly with the breakup of her marriage, there's this scene where, um, where Nancy, you know, she, her husband has left and, her sister says, I think he's cheating on you. And she's like, no, no that's ridiculous. And, um, and she sort of like, she, she says it's ridiculous, but she knows her sister is very sophisticated mm-hmm. and is probably right. But she just has this, Nancy has this thing where she needs to, she needs to prove it to herself. She mm-hmm. needs to see it herself. And so she tracks him down. And, um, and so you could see that story, that episode in the book is sort of like, well, you know, so what? It's her personal life. Did you really need to include this? But to me, that always foreshadowed First of all, it said something about her as a scientist, right? Like she needed this need to prove this to herself and to really see it, not take someone else's word for it. But then, of course, later on, she really needs to prove to herself that she is being discriminated against. She goes to the great lengths of measuring, you know, to show that she has less lab space than the men. So I think it's all of a piece. (laughs) Okay. It just, it boggles my mind that her so-called friend, who was, I think, the department chair at the time, insisted to her that she had more space than he did or just almost as much yeah, as he did and and then when she measured it he had four times as much yeah i mean that's like a major gaslighting yes <laughs> yes but the other gaslighting he does but he actually gives her the idea to measure the space because he kind of in a, in a very offhand way she's like well you know I, i'll measure my own well we'll see how it goes but like he you know, it doesn't occur to him <laughs> she's going to do this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of, and I think he thinks of himself, this is a department head who is writing in the annual reports from the department. You know, we're doing our best to find more women. And this year we interviewed more women than ever. But like, the reality is they're not hiring more women. So, so again, the best of intentions, often that's, that's what happens, but they don't, they don't bear fruit. You know, I have a story of someone I know quite well who went to work for NASA right out of college um, and he was hired through a subcontractor because um, there was it was the only way supposedly a white male could get in or something like that. But anyway, he tells this story about how he doesn't agree with affirmative action because you know he they couldn't hire him directly, and he had to go through this. And I'm and I'm thinking the whole time. And this would have been in the early 80s. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, and you got the job. And you're telling right. me that there wasn't a single woman or person of color with a physics degree from a small liberal arts college 
yeah. anywhere in the country that they that they you know couldn't have found someone if they were looking. Now the truth is he's brilliant and he definitely and he definitely deserved the job. Right. But the idea that he felt he was being discriminated against. Yeah. And he ended up with the job. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. That's another thing you see in the book is because Nancy does arrive at, at MIT in the beginning of affirmative action, I talk a little bit about this. And really, affirmative action was shot down by criticism almost as soon as it started by people who were saying, oh, this is going to mean we water down the talent pool. And there were the, all these unfounded, not backed up by any data statements that, well, this was resulting in a bunch of underqualified black and female scientists being hired. And it just wasn't true. Um, yeah. It just simply wasn't true. But it's like we just we shot out, we shot down the idea immediately out of the gate. Because the women who were hired actually have higher credentials than the men who were hired for the most part. Well, per- yes. And particularly because there were so few slots for them. You know, at, when MIT in the early 70s made an effort, they thought that the way to get more women on the faculty was to open up more slots to women as undergraduates and that these women would work their way organically through the pipeline and ultimately be hired as faculty members. And that was really the work of these women was pointing out that the pipeline leaks. But <laughs> when, the, when MIT hired, when MIT opened up to more female undergraduates, yes, they were, they were only going to have 25% of the class. So if you're competing for 25% of the slots, of course you're, the competition is going to be higher for the women. You know, it's not the men. If anything, if anything, when you start, you know, letting more women in, you're raising the standards for men. You're not lowering the standards to let more women in. Right, right. Yeah, and yet it gets twisted. Right. The narrative gets twisted and and completely falsified. It's it's just when you think about how many women in our history have did not have the opportunity to excel did not have the opportunity to contribute and all of the things we've missed out on as a culture society as a result and if you look around the world nations cultures that don't allow women to be educated and to to be in the workforce are falling behind they can't Absolutely. they're not going to be able to keep up because they're they're basically taking half of their intellectual capital and throwing it away. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of my first of all, you know, sometimes people say, oh, this is a book about science. It's like, well, no, this is a book about many different fields. But also, like, even if it is a book about science, like, look around you and tell me where science is not, you know, pick <laughs> up your phone and tell me that's not science. Right. You do everything on your phone. But one of the most important lines to me in the book comes from Bob Brown, who's now the he's about to retire, but the president of Boston University. At the time, he was the, I believe, the provost at, at MIT when all this was happening. And he says, you know, why we rely on science to solve our most difficult challenges. Why would we, knowing that, shut out half the population just to start with? Like, why would we not, why wouldn't we want more voices in the room, right? Yes. So, yeah, yes. I agree with you. What are we missing out on? Yeah. And you do touch on on um, other minority students and the issues mm-hmm. they were facing, too. Um, I mean, I'm yeah. sure there's a whole other book you could write on that. Yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely. And for black women in particular, you know, the they felt like there were groups for, for, you know, blacks in science, but they, 
um, but they were focused on men, you know, black men. And then there were groups for women in science and they were focused on white women. So they really were, you know, women without a country in all of this. Mm. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Kate Zernicki, author of The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Kate, would you read a little bit from the book for us? Yes, absolutely. So I was just going to read one passage um, from the beginning of the book um, where uh, Nancy has, just after Nancy has gone uh, and summoned all of her boldness as a 19-year-old to work for Jim, to ask Jim Watson if she can work in his lab. Again, he's this famous Nobel Prize winner. Um, The lab brought many famous visitors, none more eagerly anticipated than Francis Crick. Crick was 12 years older than Jim, and Jim revered him. Jim quoted him constantly, aped his confidence in his English intonations. Both young men are somewhat mad hatters who bubble over about their new structure and characteristic Cambridge style. A visitor from the Rockefeller Foundation to the lab wrote shortly after the discovery of the double helix. It is hard to realize one of them is an American. It was close to graduation in the spring of 1964, and Watson had planned a big party in his apartment on Appian Way in Crick's honor, inviting students along with some of Harvard's most prominent faculty. Nancy made a mental note not to drink too much. Watson served a potent cognac and wine punch, and she wanted to stay sober enough to have an intelligent conversation with Crick. She went to do some work in the lab early that afternoon in the hope she'd get the chance to meet him there first. Francis Harry Compton Crick had grown up the son of a shoemaker in the British Midlands, but carried himself with the satisfaction of an aristocrat, a man used to being acclaimed as a genius, as almost everyone who knew him now did. He was tall, handsome in an imperious way, with a prominent nose and chin, a profile worthy of a coin, and an arch smile. Nancy would have recognized him from the photograph in Jim's office of the two men gazing at their six-foot model of the double helix, had she time. But Crick arrived so suddenly behind her in the little side lab that she realized he was there only because his hands were on her breasts. What are you working on, he asked, his voice as loud as its reputation. Nancy froze. Crick was married, and she had heard he was a womanizer. A former grad student from Watson's lab had told her that he knew a postdoc who had slept with him in England, that Crick's beautiful and cultured wife knew about his infidelities but looked the other way. But Nancy hadn't dwelled on the gossip, and she hadn't considered this would come to her. She'd heard similar rumors about Jim, and he had never made a move on her. She'd never even seen Jim with a date. She wriggled on her lab stool to break free of Crick's clutch and stammered, trying to find a way to move the conversation onto science. She thought first she didn't want to embarrass him, second that she didn't want to embarrass herself. She had to be able to face him that night. She told him she was studying bacterial viruses, but that she really wanted to study the repressor function of genes, though she realized that was too challenging a problem right now. She kept talking, holding out hope he would see her as a serious person. Then, just as suddenly, Jim burst through the door, clapped his hand on Crick's back to greet him, and steered him back into his office. Nancy was alone again. If Watson had seen anything, he didn't say so. Nancy went to the party that night and held her liquor. It was crowded with dancing as usual. Jim urged her to stay to the end, which she did, hanging on the small circle talking science around the famous duo. Then, because no Radcliffe girl would walk through Cambridge alone at one o'clock in the morning, Watson and Crick, purveyors of the secret of life, the great men who generations of biology students would know by their conjoined surnames, escorted her along the brick sidewalks of Garden Street and back to her dorm. It had been, Nancy thought, as the heavy door closed behind her, a spectacular day. She could have done without Crick groping her, but after the evening at Watson's, she had almost forgotten about it. What filled her head instead was newfound assurance, 
confidence that she had found the meaning she had been looking for. She liked her private school friends well enough, liked to go to their parties, but these other people were on a higher plane. The ideas they discussed, the questions about life they were poised to answer. She wouldn't quite say she felt at home in their world, at least not yet, but even to be at the edge of their conversations, it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to her. So that's the exception. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. That's Kate Zernicki reading from The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. One thing that I found really great about this book is that there is a lot of explanation of the science, of the experiments she's doing, what she's studying. And you go into quite a bit of detail, but I felt it was very understandable for the non-science reader. Well, yeah. So how Partly do you do reasons, that? Yeah. <laughs> Partly for the reasons that I talked about before, you know, these women just so wanted, they wanted this book to be a serious book that, uh, that looked at science. Like they didn't want it to be fluffy about their personal lives. Um, and they want to be known as scientists. So I felt it was really important to take that seriously and to, to highlight, to really cherish and celebrate the science. Um, so I really struggled at the beginning. Um, just to understand it. And finally I thought, Oh, <laughs> this is like every experiment is a story, right? So even in the beginning, Nancy does a very important experiment with a guy named Mark Potashny about gene expression. And if you can see, this is going to sound crazy, but if you see the DNA molecule molecule as a character and the question of whether it's going to filter down and drop, you know, it's residue onto this paper. If you start to see that as a story, it, you can, actually it becomes exciting and oh it's a character and what's going to happen so so i really wanted people to understand that science can be thrilling and that that's what drove all of these women was was this thrill of science of this really voracious curiosity so that helped I, the harder part for me the early experiments once i once i got this idea like oh this is a story i knew what to do there um so then it was just a question of technically, am I describing the right thing? And, and so on that, I had Nancy and others as these fantastic teachers. I feel very lucky. Um, the harder part for me were the later experiments where Nancy is trying to do this large-scale genetic screen to figure out the genes that are responsible for development in zebrafish, which is going to tell us something about the genes responsible for human development and in turn – what goes what genes are implicated when something goes wrong when a baby doesn't when a fetus doesn't turn into a healthy baby what's what's happening um and that work it's just the having to start that experiment from scratch and design it and you're looking for one small thing and then another and it's happening over such a long period of time you know like a year or two that i found harder because it was like well how do we make this thrilling but mm. but again it's like they really see it as a i mean i think i think most of these scientists see it to see it as a mystery to them and they are following that mystery. So I tried to, I tried to sort of have that spirit behind it. Now that's the one where she gets the idea to use a virus to, mm -hmm. to sort of send a message into the cells. And Not I wondered, a message, basically a flag, a yeah. flag. Okay. And I wondered if that was, and somehow related to or eventually led to some of this, like the RNA mm. vaccines, if there was some relationship there. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. What one of the, the reason that MIT in nineteen in the early seventies um, decides to open this new center 
devoted to the understanding, devoted to the study, the basic the, the question of, at a basic level, what is the science of cancer? Why, how does cancer happen? And that, of course, is going to lead us to how can we make, make cancer not happen? So they're trying to understand the they At the time, they think that, um, that cancer may be caused by viruses. The reason they do that is because two men, um, Howard Temin and David Baltimore, David Baltimore becomes the head of, the, not the head of the cancer center, but the sort of the lead researcher there. Um, they, they discover reverse transcriptase, which ultimately identifies what we now know as retroviruses. It turns out that retroviruses are not implicated in that many cancers. It's actually a fairly small percentage. It does help us understand cancer, but, but where it really helps us is actually first in HIV and then, as you say, with the COVID vaccines, because of course those are retroviruses. So um, Nancy, I should be very clear, Nancy is not someone who, um, Nancy's not, she wasn't developing the viral type, viral vector that we now use to get these vaccines to us, and they're now using gene therapy. Um, but certainly the early work on retroviruses that Nancy was very involved in, um, that is, that, yes, that becomes crucial to our understanding of COVID. And, and, and one of the big, the, the discovery that Nancy gets her, gets tenure for is, is sort of the interaction of the proteins, right? So when you, when we talk about COVID, it's all about the messages that then produce these proteins. Um, so certainly, yes, the early work at MIT and the kind of virology that Nancy was involved in ultimately does pave the way for our, I know it wasn't fast enough, but our rapid <laughs> or rapid development of these vaccines. Right. And you never know what, you know, scientists are borrowing from each other's work all oh, the time. And you never know yep. what little thing that one person discovers may lead to something else that's a huge discovery. And, right, you know. It's, it's, that's how science works. Right. And again, that's why we don't want to shut anybody out. You know, Absolutely. a lot of what happens in the book are these women who like Barbara McClintock is a great example, you know, who have these ideas and they're not taken seriously and, and they don't get credit for them. And then some guy discovers it and it's like, oh wait, let's look at this idea. <laughs> and, you know, I, I say, when I talk about the book and audiences, it's like, this is, this book is for every woman who's ever had that thing in a meeting where, you know, she's at a conference table and, everyone's giving their ideas and the woman offers her idea and everyone goes, Oh yeah, whatever. And then two people down, another guy says basically the same thing. And everyone goes, Oh my God, that's a great idea. Let's look into what John's talking about. <laughs> and the poor woman is left thinking, wait, what? That was my idea. And well, you know, I think, I think a great development now is that sometimes people will say, wait, that was actually Jane's idea. Yes. <laughs> and that is one of the advantages of being the boss. I don't have that happen. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you, have, you were lucky that way. Yes. Yeah. So, the Exceptions is your second book, correct? Yes. And the first one Very was book. Boiling <laughs> Mad Inside Tea Party America. Yes. Yeah. So that was very different. And um, kind of tell me a little bit about that and why you went, yeah. you know, was there something <laughs> about that that led you to want to write something very different? <laughs> you know, so that book, um, Boiling Mad, which came out in 2010, I was approached by Times Books, which is not affiliated. It's affiliated with the Times, but it's not run. It's not owned by the Times. It's just an imprint. Um, and they asked me. I was covering conservative politics at the time, and at the time, conservative politics was all about the Tea Party. Um, so they came to me in February and said, "We want to put out this book by the um, by the midterm elections. So we're thinking September. The primaries will be over. We'll be heading into the midterm season." Um, so I had. 
six weeks to write that book. I was reporting on the Tea Party. I had been reporting on the Tea Party since, gosh, I'm trying to think, October. Um, but so I wrote that book. I, I started reporting the book maybe in October. Well, not really. I started. I got the proposal for the for the proposal and contract for that book in February of 2010. I started writing the book in April, end of April, April 26th. And it went to the printer on July 21st and then oh came out on September 10th. So that is like a completely different story. Um, Whoa. And, you know, for a quickie book, I'm, I'm proud of that book for a quickie book. And I think it's really, it's held up. Like if we now, you know, we look at it now at the time, people were like, well, is there enough to say about the tea party? And do we really care? And isn't this a flash in the pan? Now it's like, no, actually the tea party is like completely reshaped the Republican party. So yes, it mattered. Um, but this book was just, you know, I, as I said, it always, I'm proud of having covered the Tea Party, but I, I had always remembered these women and what they taught me. And this felt like, and because my father was a scientist, my grandfather, that whole side of the family, you know, they're deeply invested in physics and math. Um, this was really a, a labor of love for me. And so it's, you know, this book took me, I got the, con, you know, I started reporting in January of 2018 and I finished in January of 2022. Um, so this was a very different enterprise. Um, I really felt like I, I, Dude in this, I marinated in it. I, um, I, now, were I you still working full time as a, a journalist? Yeah. Too? So I took, I took, um, I, I went on leave in uh, March of 2019, and I came back from leave in January of 2022. So I did take nearly okay. three years off. Wow. Um, really, because this book um, just required, partly because this, the science was complicated, but there's just so much more in this book. It's a much much deeper endeavor. So yeah, I took time off, but, but also, you know, I felt that I was reaching into my family story, into my mother's story. You know, my mother had wanted to go to law school in 1954 when she graduated from college and was told she would never get a job as a lawyer. Ultimately she went back to, to law school or she did go to law school when she was 45 in the mid seventies when things had opened up. Um, so I really felt like I wanted to do these women justice. I wanted to do the science justice, and, and that just was a much deeper endeavor. Now, going into it, I assume you knew you'd be focusing on Nancy Hopkins because mm -hmm. she's the one whose papers you had access to and so forth. Mm -hmm. But but you also do focus on a couple other of the women to greater or lesser extent. How did mm -hmm. you decide which ones to, to focus on? Everybody really had to... Um, you know, there, of course, if you do a book on women in science, you can pick, you know, pick and choose everyone in this case. This, this book is really when you look at it afterward, you think, oh, my gosh, so many different points that this could have gone differently. <laughs> yes, like, that this yeah. really is, and it's really a story of collective action. So right down to, you know, I'm not overstating my role in it, but like it wasn't necessarily it wasn't guaranteed that this was going to be a newspaper story even. Um so every woman, every female scientist in the book or every woman in the book, you know, because I spent some time on Lottie Balin, who is a professor of organization at the Sloan School, um, everybody ultimately has some role in the story. So Barbara McClintock, for instance, shapes Nancy's view of women, shapes her reaction to discrimination. Um, Lottie Balin, I talk about her starting in the early 60s. She and really her parents shape how, you know, she's the one who recognizes that they, she wants to share this report, that this can be instructive for other people at MIT. Mary Lou Pardue is the one who really changes Nancy's life by saying to her when Nancy comes to her in 1994, saying, I think I might be discriminated against. Nancy's very nervous. She thinks she's the only one. And she thinks Mary Lou is going to say, no, 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 you're just not that good a scientist. 
Mary Lou brings her own experience to this. And so I talk about Mary Lou starting in 1955. Um, and all of these, and then I talk about, you know, some of the 16, oh, and then the other person I talk about is, uh, there's a chapter devoted to Millie Dresselhaus, who is a physicist, who my father had mentioned to me, you know, six months before I did this story, um, and I ignored him. Um, <laughs> but Millie Dresselhaus really represented MIT, she was a physicist, and she represented MIT's approach to getting more women on its faculty, which for a long time, as I said earlier, was really just about get more women among our undergraduates, and they'll organically rise up to become female faculty. And Millie, ultimately, to her credit, recognizes that when, in 1994, she recognizes that's not enough and that they have to, she later says, we have to kick the men a little bit. Um, so every, all the women that I talk about ultimately have something to do with how the story, with the end result, which is that the story becomes public and the whole world is like, oh my God, we, gotta, we have a problem here. So yeah, all all the women have ultimately have some role in that. And did you have to like get permission from each of them to include them in the book? Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And so you know, you mentioned Nancy's papers, but really the you know the the papers were about her committee work largely, and you know the women's committee, and that that's like you know only the last third of the book. So the beginning, it was really a lot of. You know, I worked in the Watson archives and I talked to all the scientists she worked with as a young woman and, um, you know, used letters that she had written to Jim Watson, which really narrated her time in graduate school. Um, but, yeah, so I had to talk to the other women. There were some um, there were some oral histories in MIT, which is which were useful to me. And one of the reasons they were useful, a couple of the women have died. Um, and I spoke to so in some cases for that, like I spoke to Millie Dresselhouse's daughter and granddaughter. Um, and I had records of things that her um, her graduate students had talked to, had said about her at a memorial service and in letters. Um, but I did want to talk to as many of the 16 women as I could. And one of them, just to give you a range, one of them has uh, closed up her lab and doesn't you know doesn't do science anymore. Was she was one of the youngest women at the time, but she was driven out of science. She didn't want to talk because she felt that the book was going to be too positive and that I wasn't going to say that I wasn't going to make the situation look bad enough. And she really mm. feels like, yes, they fixed the, fixed the situation at the time, but it's not cured. At the other end was a woman who um, who has done some amazing research into Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. She's a National Medal of Science winner and Gray Beale. She was nervous about talking because she didn't want things to look worse than they were. Or, or she didn't want, I think she didn't want to, to say bad things. She didn't want to name names and say bad things about some of the men. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a real, it was a real range, but I, but I got as many of them as I could. Have you gotten any pushback from, from any of the men who come off as less than, uh, less than supportive of their women colleagues? Well, yeah. So two reactions, Nancy, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back for Nancy is that she's asked to develop this biology class required biology course for MIT. It's a very big deal to the, depart the biology department, to the university. She does it really well. She teaches with a younger man. Um, and then, the course, he decides he wants to teach with another guy because he's feeling a little stale, but then it comes out that he and this other guy have founded a company together, and they're going to commercialize this course and make money on a textbook and teaching videos, and Nancy's out of the course, um, and she's also out of a lot of money, potentially. Um, so one of those women is a one of those men is a guy named Eric Lander who um, was President Biden's science advisor and was pushed out of the White House after it was a report from the White House revealed that he treated he was um, 
treated underlings badly, you know, spoke to them mm. in a way that could be perceived as bullying. Um, and he he said he he you know understood the book and he thought it was fair. There was, but he wanted me to know that he wanted me to say that um, there had never they had never done a textbook and they had given up this idea of textbook writing the textbook because Nancy had you know Nancy had asked them to, which isn't really true. They really they tried twice to do it. I mean they really pushed back and tried to do this against her wishes. Mm. Um, but he I think he resists this and he thinks well this is just Nancy's point of view. Um, on the other hand, the guy that he wanted to teach with, who he had started this company with, he uh, actually showed up to one of my talks and said that he showed up because he wanted to thank me because he was happy that I had not discouraged more women from going into science. In fact, I had encouraged women to go into science. Ultimately, the book does that. So those are like a real range of the reactions. Some of them are like – some of them kind of still don't get it. Um, and <laughs> and some hand, of them – people are grateful. And some of them are doing better. Yeah, and you know what he said to me was, "We all grew up," and I think that's kind of where they see this. They understand that this was they they too were not the exceptions. They were acting in a way that the culture kind of dictated for them. Absolutely. Well, Kate, we're completely out of time. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we always close with a quote, and I found one in twenty five inspiring quotes from groundbreaking women in science, and this is from Barbara mm -hmm. McClintock. If you know you are on the right track, if you have this inner knowledge, then nobody can turn you off no matter what they say. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. And thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.